0: Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Off The Pulpit. My name is Eugene. I'm Jason. I'm Thomas. We're three pastors and three friends conversing on life, culture, and church off the pulpit. Again, thanks for listening. Uh, Really excited to have an interview, uh, not shown, but presented to you guys with Rebecca McLaughlin. We'll get a little bit into that, uh, just introing her and her work and her ministry. But before that, uh thanks everyone for sending a bunch of mail back questions again we got uh, we keep getting more and more some of them uh i wish i could say on air but i can't and you know who you are for asking so hopefully we can get uh, a, a special episode of that but a couple of uh mailback questions that we got uh, a couple first ones just kind of iceberg questions i think people just want to get to know us a little bit more uh one was what you know all of you are in kind of korean american areas what's your favorite korean food and where can i get it in california i mean well, i LA think the, is best. the best
1: right yeah yep yeah i was gonna say yeah i mean i think k-town is hard to beat although there are what? pockets of orange county that are becoming like Wana little park yeah
0: little mini k-town is little new new little korea town but jason what's like your favorite dish from your favorite restaurant in korea town Ooh. Man,
1: like um the the beauty of K Town is like if you're craving something very specific, you know, there are restaurants that do certain things really well. So, you know, if you want good posam, uh you gotta go to Kobau. That place was bomb. So good. Um best lunch special for sure in LA. Um if it's a hot day and you, you like cold noodles, um you definitely gotta go to Kirimok and get their tongchimi or you gotta go to Yuchun and get their nengmyeon. Nice. Um, obviously, so many Korean barbecue spots to name. Um, I think one all-around great restaurant that does a lot of things really well is a restaurant called Chinsol Kukbap. Kukbap? Mm, um, yeah. Oh, if you like kukbap, awesome. they do kukbap well. They do nengmyeon well. They have good side dishes um solid option but i have a whole list that
0: i can send uh, whoever asked that question so yeah dm jason if you're interested the only thing i would add is uh i love Hong and there's a place it's called hanbat right jason hanbat Yeah, that place is so good and i think it's still cheap so check that out if you can um another question we got well this will be interesting because i think jason has experience in the east coast uh, living there but what are some differences between east coast and west coast korean american uh church context that you guys have witnessed pastoring or just living in
2: you can add to it jason i heard from people in the east coast that the west Coast are more how do i put it advanced and by advanced meaning like in terms of like uh, christian culture they will catch on faster or more quickly so for example the, the music, I think in the West Coast churches, you will see more of the music being adapted and played into the churches versus a lot of churches in the East Coast, they're still playing like shout to the Lord and things like that. That's what I heard. But is that true? What?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say um, a little bit of a generalization, but, th- <laughs> you know, I'd say true, you know, given that I think in general, like, um, especially in LA, I think culture just catches on a little bit faster. So everything kind of trickles down. One thing I will say that's um, again, again an overgeneralization, but West Coast is way flakier than East Coast. The um, church commitment. Yeah, church commitment. So, so what? It, how it how it is is that on the East Coast, um, you know, you take RCPS for an event, and you might have like five people sign up, so it's kind of discouraging. Um, on the West Coast, uh, or like in LA, you'll have like twenty people sign up. When the day comes though, in LA, you'll have like four people there and on the East Coast, you'll have all five there. So in, in the end, you get more, um, mm. you get a hundred percent commitment on the East Coast. Like, I feel like LA, there's a lot of like, you know, everyone wants to do it at first, um, but pretty low commitment in the long run. It's kind of like how LA people say, let's go grab coffee. That usually just means high, you know, mm. that's, that's not, they're not actually wanting to get coffee
0: with you. Uh, one was, uh, which Bible translation should we use? There's so many out there. Is ESV really the gold standard for all of us to use? Probably depends what tribe
2: you're from. Like if you're from that Reformed tribe, that's the ESV is the go-to. If you're more from that fundamentalist tribe, it's like the new King, King James Version. If you're more of that like megachurch tribe, it's NIV. And then I heard like the newer one was it CSB. You guys hear that one yeah. before? Yeah, that's kind yeah. of, like the, that's she, she's like the new girl who people are flirting with a lot. Um, but well, yeah, I think it depends on your tribe. NLT is like making a comeback too. NLT is right? cool too. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And you
2: know, one but, thing is all the translation is actually pretty good. Like I remember for the longest time people bashed the message version dude. by Eugene Peterson. But dude, when you actually read it and see the theology, it's, it's rock solid.
0: It's great. Wait, which which translations do all of you guys use for your church, like to to read scripture from? I'm interested in that.
2: We do ESV, and that's mainly because that's kind of what everyone has inherited, and so we yeah. just keep that up.
1: We actually do a pretty like diverse mix: ESV, mm. NIV, NLT. At times, like nice. um, I think switching up the translations um, for especially familiar passages can actually be really helpful for our congregation. Like recently, I preached through um, Psalm twenty-three. And we all know Psalm 23 as the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, but the NLT version, I think, says the Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. And those like small kind of like shifts um, give certain passages that you've heard all your life kind of yeah. new meaning. And yeah. and so like even when I prepare, and I'm sure this is the case for you guys, I look through multiple translations because um, I think each one offers something that might, you know, might help in your interpretation and of you text. pick
2: and you pick the translation that works best for your sermon right <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly exactly you're like I, I don't like that
0: word so i'm gonna use the other <laughs>
2: whichever works best for your sermon title
0: you'll use that yeah version. whenever <laughs> pastors say you know this word actually means it's, it's just yeah it's just their opinion <laughs> it works they just found the a translation that fits um yeah i the only thing i would add is like yeah I, jason's advice is really good read read two two or three translations and read ones that are very separate like i always read the message now I was always like this, I always thought the ESV was the version to read but always reading two wildly different translations is really helpful even for a personal level so I hope that's helpful um, another question we got is swearing or cuss words themselves are they inherently sinful um, how how can that be if that changes every culture and basically the, the question was what should we do about cussing or, or certain words that are quote unquote you know taboo in, in the in the church world you
2: know I got that question a lot. Like, what do we do with cussing? Is that a sin? And they usually invoke like the Ten Commandments using the Lord's name in vain. But you're not using the Lord's name in vain when you're cussing. And so you can't really use that. So what kind of makes cussing bad? And again, that, that question is true. Like, it, it's different culture to culture, the, the way the language is used. But I do think that's something to it is depending on your culture, how is how is that language translated or how do people receive it? And so there is warrant to the use of language. And again, the Bible does give that general warning about the use of the tongue and making sure it doesn't devour or destroy. And so I do think we should be mindful, but yeah, it's, it's probably not that fundamentalist
0: response, which is cussing is just bad. It's a little probably more nuanced than that. I think in certain arenas cussing is good because it's just, if you, if you're so scared to say something, oftentimes you're not articulating what you're going through. Like the, the there's always been the idea that even the Psalmist, when he writes in certain areas, it's very, very, vulgar at times because he's being very like very honest to god and i think in terms of that i think we got to get rid of like oh don't say that or like sometimes man as a parent like i've i've sworn way more than 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 before having kids just because of the anger that sometimes i get but that's my only two sons too um jason any jason do you do you like swear i'm always curious because you're like the nice guy of the three of us Uh, this is not
1: me like being holier than thou it's like i have many other sins that i struggle with but i don't you know my friends know that i don't really swear that much they actually they everyone wants me to just curse Um, it just i think my wife would laugh if i if i ever cursed Um, i just that's just not something i do Um, but I, i agree with both of you you know i think we like they're bigger fish to fry than that often and I, one thing I will say is, you know, I think it. We do have to always be thinking about our witness, though. Mm. Um, and you know, it, uh, if our primary directive is to love God, love neighbor. Um, I think in certain contexts, you know, just as Tom said, being mindful of of what you say and how you say it, I think is is important. It's part of our witness as believers.
0: Uh, a couple other questions: How do you preach after fighting with your spouse? On Saturday evening, that's a great, um, great question. Anyone want to answer that? Don't look at her in the eyes (laughs) on stage while you're while you're (laughs) preaching. Right, that's good advice. That's good advice. Tom, any any experience in this uh, hypothetical question? I mean, this never happens to me, but (laughs) no, actually,
2: when when it does happen you know it's so wrong i get so bothered like how can you fight with me knowing i'm about to preach right now like it, it's like this it's so wrong to think that way so, but you so almost think that, that way. way yeah like man like mm. you know i'm about to like preach and I have to you know put on a different mode and so but yeah i i, I do think that encourages pastors to try to reconcile quickly with their spouses
0: mm-hmm. yeah you know when you listen to a sermon like if it's bad there could you don't understand like there's could be so many things going on so just give the preacher some some benefit of the doubt sometimes maybe they did have a fight but all in all we just have to do it so we just do it i think that's the answer that we would give um a couple uh couple last more serious questions or one two serious and, and one not serious i'll save the not serious one for last uh one do you uh, how can asian american churches better give uh, give their woman in their congregation, a better platform. Um, we've talked about this uh, a bit before, but I guess for you guys, like any, any general thoughts on that question, uh, given our current context.
2: One thing I thought was really helpful when I talked to the sisters in our church, cause that was one big thing we talked about a lot is we want to platform sisters. We want that to be part of our culture, but before you ever platform sisters in the church, are you actually integrating them into your church? Because if you're, not, if you're not integrating them, but you're just platforming them, then that becomes tokenism. Where they're platformed, they're put on stage, and it almost comes off as your pro women. But then behind the scenes, if they're not really in the conversation with leadership, they not in the conversation with how church is going, then it's just a show. And so I do think the more important thing than platforming is genuine integration. And that genuine integration comes behind the scenes, and you'll get that feel from the sisters who are actually at the church. And so to me, I think that's the first step. And then platforming will come almost naturally. It'll be like a more of an organic platforming as opposed to we're just going to put women up for up front.
0: Yeah, that's good. Jason.
1: Uh, I totally agree with Tom. I think women have to have a voice, um, at the highest, uh, they, they have to actually have a voice in the decision-making process. A lot of times it's a group of men deciding how to platform women, yeah. which doesn't really make sense. Um, and I mean, at, at our church, we're blessed. Like, you know, everyone knows 90% of our staff are women. And that makes a difference. <laughs> you know, awesome. they're, they're speaking into the ministries and, and, you know, they're very well integrated. If anything, like our church, we're, we're trying to figure out how to raise up more men, you know, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um,
0: but yeah. But that's, Jason's point is good. I, staff that have women, I think is a good sign. Like it's, it's just, that's, that's what you have to do to hire and and put your money where your mouth is too. But that
2: question was for Asian churches, right? And I do think one last thing to consider is, uh, there is a context in Asian churches where women are not normally platformed. And so Mm. I do think just like, Hey, open invitation sisters, you're welcome too. that's not going to cut it. Like the lead pastor, the pastors have to actually reach out and 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 put confidence into sisters going hey we actually really need you because that's not going to come easily because of the generational uh culture that's been built up in asian churches which is women you aren't allowed to speak and that's just not good and so i do think it's a little bit more unique in an asian context nice
0: uh second to last do you think there are less asian american church planners compared to other ethnicities in your own observations if so Why do you think that is? And how can we develop more Asian American church planters in our current context?
2: You guys could chime in if you guys think differently. I think there are still a lot of Asian church planters, but they only plant in areas filled with Asians. Like the idea of church planting where, you know, there's not many Christians in the area. I feel like there is a sense of, well, as an Asian, I, can I really plant in Alabama, even though there's a lot of there's not a lot of churches there because as a, church planter will people actually come to the church when it's led by an Asian man. And yeah. so I feel like if you're a different race, especially if you're like white, you feel like you could plant anywhere. Versus for Asians, it's almost like you're limited to planting in Cerritos or LA or San Francisco or some place where it's highly Asian populated. And so there's kind of a ceiling of where you can actually plant. So they tend to be uh, planting all in the same area because they are all reaching the same type of people, which is fellow Asians. And so in that, so there are a lot of planters. You just don't see them spread out as much because again, we're trying to reach Asians because yeah, that's the only people it seems like Asian planters
0: feel like they can reach. Yeah. And, and I also think like with, I think everything Tom says completely on, on point two. In addition to that, like there's this inherent sense of competition and scarcity mindset with, within Asian American churches. Like I see a lot of networks of already established churches doing things with other established churches. I rarely see churches helping out plants or churches are just starting because of that mindset so i do and even i guess not to get too deep but even some church plants it's like out of spite it's it's not born out of this like healthy soil so obviously that's not good soil to plant out of and it just leads to disaster so i think there has to be within our generation and younger like a lot more of friendship and brotherhood and, and sisterhood even going on because that that's just not healthy, I think, for a church planting environment too. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, agreed. Um, I, I mean, I agree with everything you guys said, and um, I do think there, like, there's also like a cultural element of, you know, I think Asian Americans still feel like they're often very deferential, and or you know, they 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 don't always take the bull by the horns. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they'll, they'll kind of like leave it up to someone else to pave the way. And then they'll either imitate that or, you know, follow a long suit. But, you know, I, I do think, I agree. I think in our generation, there needs to be more, um, Asian American church planners. I would love to see
0: more of that. Yeah. Nice. Last question. Uh, you know what? I'm going to combine two that we, one that we got and another one that I know a friend was just asking me. So I'm going to just ask you guys. Can you tell me your feelings on Greg Locke? He was the viral pastor who said that there are witches in the church. Are there witches uh, in the church, and what should we do about it? <laughs> if you so, <laughs> I'll give you some context. Christian Twitter, Christian social media—it's it's a crazy world if you're not a part of it. And most of it's a lot of white churches. It's also very entertaining. Um, recently, there was a right-wing fundamentalist pastor by the name of Greg Locke. I think I don't know where he's at, but he has this awesome. Ty- like, he just goes on this rant on the pulpit on witches being in the congregation. Sorry, I say awesome in sarcastic sense. But you, you just watch it. It's very interesting. But I guess for you guys, yeah, how do you react to stuff like that? Uh, that And, you know, it went pretty viral. I, I think CNN and, and some of the major news outlets were also uh, broadcasting it. But I guess what are your thoughts? Are there witches in the church today? <laughs> and, and are they in your congregation? <laughs>
1: I do not claim Greg Locke as one of our own. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, I to be honest, I used to watch guys like Greg Locke and kind of laugh, thinking, you know, they were just like Mm, one in a a billion
0: element of the church, such a
1: fringe. Um, But I mean, I know this is kind of a continuation of our last episode, but the the scary thing about Greg Locke is that he is not fringe there are many many white evangelical pastors who believe a lot I mean the the thing about the witches is just one of many Greg Locke's uh, m- many of Greg Locke's rants that are wild that a lot of people actually you know like a, a lot of people have liked those tweets and have liked those videos and it just shows you how how deep of a problem this is um, Um, and it's, it's uh, everything we talked about on, on our last episode is this weird conflation of, um, Christianity with a whole bunch of other stuff that has nothing to do with the gospel, but those are my thoughts on him.
2: I wonder like why guys like Greg Locke even gain a following. And obviously Greg Locke's like an extreme example, but I feel like the reason why he gains a following, at least one reason is he's so confident in what he believes and yeah. that's kind of what people are looking for. They they don't know what they believe, but if somebody knows what they believe, you will follow that person because if you don't have confidence, cling to the person who has confidence. And so you have other guys who are just strong speakers or strong beliefs, and you just follow them because they just have these this conviction that you want to you want to like almost join in on. And so guys like Greg Locke, you know, I think that's the main appeal because again he speaks with such conviction, even if it's about witches. Like he, he believes it, man. And so if he believes it, then it makes you want to believe it too.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's witches uh, in your congregation. I don't think they would be at a church, uh, my opinion, if they do exist. But um, yeah, I, he's he's a at first a humorous phenomenon that you observe. But as Jason mentioned, it kind of uncovers a bigger problem. And even another pastor recently, Brian Suave, Suave, Suave I Tom, do you know how to pronounce his last name? Nope. Uh, whoever maybe, but he went viral too, and it was you know it wasn't as like childish as Greg Locke's, but it was basically a tweet on you know women shouldn't expose anything, and it oh, just went is viral. Oh, the dear dear Brian. Yeah, dear Brian, and and it's it's like it's it's just it's an extension of our last episode. Like there's a so much syncretism with just white patriarchic pa- white patriarchy and Jesus, and you know even Kristen Kobe's debate that came on. Again, we don't agree with her on everything, but. She uncovered a lot of that, too. So it's just, man, it goes deep. And we hope that, uh, yeah, we hope you're just more aware of those things happening in the church, too. So, um, But, yeah, if you want to list, look that up on, on Twitter, just look up Greg Locke, and I'm pretty sure it'll be the first hit that, that comes up. There's a lot. It, it's a deep, deep, deep rabbit hole that I've been on at 2 a.m., So just be careful when you go into that. So um, thanks for all the mailbag questions. We had way more that we couldn't answer. Just keep sending them in. We'll try and get to all of them as we continue our episodes. Really thankful for everyone that uh, is interacting with us in that sense. But with that, I always wanted to intro to Rebecca McLaughlin. Um, You're about to listen to her in a little bit. Um, she's an author. She talks a lot about LGBTQ issues, which she'll get into. But yeah, I guess for you guys, uh, before our listeners do listen to that, any, any thoughts to kind of prime them and to get ready for that interview?
2: I mean, I love Rebecca McLaughlin. She speaks to the culture in a way where she's both orthodox and yet so sensitive and engaging to social issues. Um, I mean, the fact that she tackles LGBTQ issues, that's like, wow, like you must have like guts to be able to do that. I mean, she she her, she herself has shared in her books that uh, she experienced SSA in her life, uh, same sex attraction, and so she's not speaking as if she doesn't know, but she also experienced uh, those feelings for herself. And um, I think just hearing her, you could just tell that she knows what she's talking about. She engages with the literature, but she also engages with people, and so there's such a pastoral heart in her writing. And so to me, like it was awesome just you know talking to her. And again, her books, uh, "Confronting Christianity, I think that's by far the best book that's engaging Christian beliefs with the current social issues that are out there. And yeah, she's
1: just great. I I love Rebecca McLaughlin. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've I've read all her books. Um, I got her. um, She also has a book for um, youth students, which I think is incredible as well. Um, and in that sense, I do think she is speaking um, to the next generation and she's speaking to issues that Gen Z cares about. Um, I think a lot of times, uh, especially w- you know, when I talk to pastors and church leaders, we often are focused on the generation in front of us and we're not focused enough on the generation coming up. But I do think a lot of the questions um, she tackles really speaks to what the questions that Gen Z
0: is asking, which I think is so great. Yeah. She she almost carried and we talked about this in, when we interviewed her, she, like, has Tim Keller's spirit for the Gen Z coming forward. Like, she just speaks mm-hmm. very boldly and yet kindly and very clearly about issues that we're all struggling with. And if you haven't, you know, all the books, you know, Confronting Christianity is really good. Secular Creed, which is her most recent book, which we spend a lot of time kind of dis, uh, discuss, discussing in the interview, it's a must read uh, for any Christian, I think, because it just so clearly outlines what you are surrounded by in your workplace or just in your life. So, uh, really excited to show you the interview uh, with Rebecca. Um, we hope you're blessed by it. And yeah, uh, stick around for that. And we, we hope you're blessed by this episode. all right well hey everyone we have uh another special guest really excited to speak to Uh, we have rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, a couple of just introduction notes she has a phd in renaissance literature from cambridge university um, and also some degrees from oak hill theological college in london she's an author of several books um, a couple that have helped us a lot confronting christianity and most recently the secular creed Uh, she's originally from london by i believe she's in cambridge Massachusetts, not England uh, at the moment. But Rebecca, uh, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, one question I want to ask you just to, to kind of start things off was it, it seems like most of your work is in cultural apologetics. I think that's the best way I could put it. Um, what what kind of led you? I mean, you have a PhD in Renaissance literature, which I found interesting. But like what kind of led you into that journey of, of being a cultural apologist in this time?
3: Hmm. I have been a Christian for a really long time, it feels like kind of a long time at this point. And ever since I was quite young, both sort of literally and and in the faith, say so from you know, ten, eleven kind of age, I was surrounded by um, very intelligent, very um, you know, often very kind of kind and generous people who strongly disagreed with mm. the Christian faith. So I was in sort of very academic high school and then um, in a university context, was very academic and with with people who not only didn't happen to believe in Christianity, but has sort of principled obje- objections <clears throat> to Christianity. So I feel like I've been having you know, conversations with friends for uh, ever since then, really, that have touched on a whole range of, of issues. Um, and I think what I become increasingly convinced of the more I've had this conversation, and actually also the more I've read the you know, leading non-Christian voices, whether you know, folks who identify as atheist or agnostic from other traditions, the more I think that when you look more closely at each of these objections to Christianity, they end up becoming a signpost to Jesus rather than a mm. roadblock to faith in him. Um, so I think at heart, I, I care about evangelism, but what I recognize is that there are so many um, issues that keep people from even considering Christianity. So many things that we need to kind of clear out of the way um, before we can engage them in the gospel or in the process of engaging them with the gospel. Because I, I, I really um, want apologetics. Any time sort of I'm engaging in that to be hand in hand with the gospel rather than sure. distinct from it. But I think that there's um, <clears throat> there are a lot of barriers that we need to carefully um, move aside or turn upside down. Uh, mm. for, for to consider Jesus as they should.
2: Whenever I talk to my friends about your books I describe you as the the female Keller who from London. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, I'm much shorter you, than he is
3: even though I'm relatively <laughs> tall. <for
2: him. laughs> um, you know how long were you in London for? Was that most of your life until you did grad school work or? When, yeah when did I was you come in London
3: you? from 9 to 18 and then again from 20 no 25
2: to 28 okay got it so a lot of your formative the formation of your faith it was both in london and also here in massachusetts as well like your encounter with uh people who had questions about the faith
3: Yeah, and I had seven years in Cambridge in the UK, uh, which is as well both uh, through undergrad and.
2: Did you find like what would you note? What would you say is the difference between the types of questions or barriers in people in London versus here in the United States? Like, did you notice like something about America and their view of the faith? that tends to be a little bit different in their objections, or do you find it's actually pretty similar? Do you find London has they're more ahead in their questions? Like, what did you kind of notice?
3: Yeah. I mean, of course the, the U S is a, a massive place. It, it took me a while to get my head around this when I moved here, uh, you know, I thought you'd mail something it would arrive the next day by definition because in the UK it does. And my husband mm. had to explain, I know, this is actually quite a big country. So you mail things that <laughs> I don't always get there the next day. And, and similarly, of course, the, the issues and concerns of folks in different parts of the U S are going to be widely different. I think one of the big mental changes I've had to go through is that in, in the UK, there isn't really such a thing as cultural evangelical faith. Like our cultural Christianity is cathedrals and choirs mm-hmm. and sort of things that feel ancient and that people might like sort of aesthetics. Um, there are very few people in the UK who would identify themselves as evangelicals and didn't actually mean it. Um, it so it's taken me. I, I actually still frequently need to be reminded um, by my closest Christian friend here that there are a lot of people in America who would say that they're evangelicals and literally have no faith in Jesus at all. Like, really, I mean, that, that it's it's actually a cultural identity more than it's anything to do with authentic faith in Jesus. So that, that's one of the things that was a mental adjustment for me. And I think with that, whereas Christians in the UK um, are, are sort of often seen as probably like a, an, an irrelevant minority. Um, In the US, there is um, a a history of sin that I think in particular, you know, white evangelicals, and I consider myself both white and evangelical, so I don't sort of say this from from the outside. There's a a history of sin that we have not properly owned and which um, gives our non-Christian friends um, real moral grounds for being skeptical of anything else that we would say. Sure. And I I think that's particularly true when it comes to the way that you know Black Americans have been um, treated through American history. That there's, um, I I think, I had to figure this out as I transitioned from the UK to the US because I thought, oh, the association people have of like white evangelicals with racism, like that's got to be that's got to be made up, that's got to be slander, that's got to be fake. Mm,
2: It's pretty real, right?
3: (laughs) Realizing that it's much much more true in a lot of instances than I wanted to believe actually
1: mm. Mm. I mean on that note you know there's there's been a lot of talk you know recently about the church experiencing at least here in the u.s a kind of second Reformation of sorts and there's like um, a lot of deconstruction that's happening I think that that is pointing aptly to the to the way scripture has often been weaponized mm. uh, to, to justify the oppression and marginalization of, of certain groups of people um, so reading your book, the Secular Creed, was interesting because you know I, I think even as as we engage with all of those contemporary claims that you talk about, um, I think something that a lot of pastors we know are struggling with is you know how do you discern which claims um, or cultural mantras are indeed problematic, mm. and which claims are maybe just examples of healthy deconstruction that needs to happen um, in Christianity here in the mm. U.S.
3: Mm. When I was in in Theological College in, in the UK, I remember one of um, our church history lecturers saying that when we, we look through the history of the church at, at different moments, sort of um, questions of heresy, the first thing that Christians almost always have to say is we must distinguish between you know, A and B. And A and B can look at first glance quite similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Uh, As we engage with a lot of um, the the sort of cultural questions and challenges that are coming to us today as Christians, we often want a really quick, um, sort of quick fix, knee-jerk reaction. Um, I think of the the yard signs that actually inspired me to write the secular creed that say, you know, in this house we believe that Black Lives Matter, love is love, women's rights are human rights. And then there's usually a kind of collection of two or three other claims that seem to vary from sign to sign. we'll look at a sign like that and we'll think okay tell me as a christian should i agree with that or disagree like i want to sort of i want to on off switch yes or no grab it and put it in my own yard or knock it down approach and that actually in order to properly understand and to properly um witness as christians on all of these issues we must distinguish and we need to look at the the things um uh, the assumptions underneath each of those claims that christians can and must affirm mm-hmm. and we need to carefully distinguish them from the ones that, that the bible strictly forbids us to affirm and um, but but it's not going to be just a kind of really quick fix answer mm. um and i so i think we we as christians today need to get better at something that you know our forebears had to be good at once upon a time as well which is just like carefully distinguishing between two things that might look similar but aren't
2: do, do you know, like, how would you describe this current cultural moment? Because I feel like in the past when we engaged the world or how Christians were taught to engage the world, there was a lot of like classic apologetics, like evidential proof of God's existence. I feel like the reason for God, when, Keller, when Tim Keller wrote that book, it kind of addressed a lot of the new atheist questions, but then your book confronting Christianity, it kind of had like a different spin to it. And I feel like you were engaging like a more modern crowd and the questions that they had, like, how would you describe what that I guess this cultural moment is for people right now, like what would you describe it? Is it like a skeptical moment right now, or are they engaging just in different types of questions that we could put in categories? Like, how would you describe this current moment?
3: Yeah, I think, um, and I know that Tim Keller would agree with this. So this is original to me, but I think we go back 10 or 15 or 20 years. Um, mostly as Christians, we'd be seen as uh, sort of foolish or deluded for believing what we believe. And so that's where the new atheists like Richard Dawkins and, um, sort of come come swinging and to tell us how how stupid we are for believing the the kinds of myths that we believe today it's not that people don't think we're stupid <laughs> they probably still think we're stupid but it, it, the the concern is more that we are immoral mm. Mm. and and i think that's been a really hard emotional shift for a lot of christians to go through because it's sort of hard enough feeling like everyone thinks that you're dumb but you know Okay, I'll come and you know show that I'm smart, really, and give you some good arguments for for believing in God. Um, but when we feel like we're sort of on the moral back foot, um, and we feel like we're being attacked on on the basis of of ethics and being portrayed as the bad guys, that hits us differently emotionally. Mm. And I think one of the things that we as Christians today need to get really good at. Is recognizing that when that hits us emotionally, our knee-jerk reaction will be to want to fight back. Mm. You know, you're making me feel bad, and so I'm going to hit back with the same kind of weapons that you're using against me. Sounds like a great idea, until you open up your Bible, and there you see that Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. Sure. And there um, we see time and again that Jesus calls us to um, humility and not to pride. And so when I feel under attack, because either my beliefs are being attacked, or the sort of history of my tribe is being attacked, I need to recognize okay, my instinct here is going to be to fight back to try and claim the moral high ground to try and prove that I'm you know, better than anybody thinks. Um, and that, that they're wrong, and to sort of make them feel as bad as they make me feel. Actually, I need to resist that impulse. And I need, you know, like Paul to say, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. So I think we need to actually, in in a funny sense, we need to occupy the moral low ground. Um, I don't mean in terms of like behaving immorally, but I mean in terms of recognizing, sure. yeah, um, I come to this party as a sinner, not as someone you know to tell you, um, you know, how how good I am and how you know maybe if you're lucky you'll get to be like me. And Jesus has the moral high ground, and we and we don't. And so I think that's one of the shifts that we need to go through. And I think it connects up with this sense that we often have as christians and especially in america that we ought to be sort of in in power culturally and that we have some a a sort of divine right to control um you know overall american politics in 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 some way or other um and so when we recognize oh no actually we don't and maybe maybe god's calling us to faithfulness in a position where we're not necessarily in power in one way or another um that just that requires a, a different but I think, more biblical attitude.
0: So if I wanted to press into that question. I, I think that framing is really helpful. Um, one question I have to follow up to get more practical, I think all three of us have congregants and members and even listeners that are working in extremely secularized liberal settings, where before mm. it was almost, you, you might have to hide your sexual identity if you were LGBTQ. Nowadays it's almost flipped where if you are Christian, a lot of my members are like, I don't want to tell my coworkers that I'm Christian mm-hmm. with yeah. the, the baggage that that brings. And I think, you know, I've heard you speak on how you've personally interacted with certain people about hot topic issues uh, of the culture. And I guess to get really practical, let's just say in a work setting, how should a Christian best prepare to talk about it? Like, should they bring it up? Uh, like, oh, that I am Christian. Like, what are some strategies that have helped you? Because I think you've actually personally engaged in these conversations. And I think that's very rare to find outside of a belligerent tone. So I guess for you, like as getting as practical as you can, what are the best practical strategies you could give just to help people that are, are surrounded in a very secular setting?
3: Mm-hmm. I'm actually going to give an example from my daughter, who's, who's 11 and in her first year at middle school, because I think she's doing a really good job of this. And she is in, in, daily in a a sort of quite secular environment that I'm you know I sit at home writing my books happily um, so I I'll, I'll, I'll give her an ex- as an example when she um, her first week of middle school uh, I asked her if she'd met any Christians she said yeah there was one Christian girl that she'd encountered and I was like oh how, you know did you know her from this context she was like no did you know her from that context no so well, you know how do you know she's a christian so we were doing this um this icebreaker exercise as a whole class And you had to write down um, on a piece of paper, like three things that were true about you. And then everybody sits down, the teacher reads out, picks up the first person's anonymous card and reads the first thing out. And if that's not true of you, then you sit down and it's only like, eventually one person is gonna be left standing because all those three things are true of her. So my daughter had written, the first thing she had written was, I'm a Christian. And when the teacher read that out, everybody in the class sat down except her and one other girl. So that's how she knew. And I think that's a that's a great starting point for us. I think we should never be ashamed to be known as Christians, mm-hmm. um, especially, and we should fight that, especially when we know that it will make us be perceived as ne- negatively, right? That, that's particularly when we need to be known as Christians. But we also need to be known for our love. So um, when we show practical, real, relational love, To everybody in our workplace and to especially perhaps to those who um christians might be seen as having a history of being less loving towards Mm. you know we need to to do what the scriptures call us to and you know love our neighbor and love our enemy like whichever category these folks fall into often you know there might be some overlaps there need to be known for our love um so that when the really hard conversations come up people can still, it's not, I mean, to some extent, people are, are going to um, you know, see us as uh, hateful, um, almost whatever we say, but mm. we, at that point, um, with God's help, need to have a clear conscience that in fact, we have, we have shown with our lives that, that we're not. Both in our broad society today, and also actually all too often in, in the church, we think that in order to love somebody, we need to be affirming everything that they, that they choose to do. And that, you know, that puts us un- under pressure in the workplace or in a sort of secular environment, because we're, um, being, we're told that if we, if we don't affirm everything that somebody does, then we're hateful and unloving. But actually, as Christians, we'll sometimes get confused on that as well, and we'll think, okay, I know that I can't affirm everything that this other person or this group of people do, and so that means that um, I need to shout them down. Uh, that, that means that I, I don't need to pursue like loving relationship with them. I actually need to you know, remove myself from <clears throat> potentially contaminating contact with them. You know, there's all sorts of ways in which we, mm. we actually miss one of Jesus's most radical teachings, which is about loving our enemy, like at the, at the extreme, like even if you're a Christian in Afghanistan, like needing to love your enemy, he may be like literally persecuting you. And also, just loving across profound difference. Um, I, I love Jesus's parable of the Good Samaritan. There are so many different things that he's teaching us there, but one strand of what he's teaching that I think we often miss in our culture today is is that it's a story about love across racial, ethnic, cultural, religious difference.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: That it doesn't strike us because we don't think of Samaritans as, you know, our, our racial and cultural enemy or religious enemies. We think of, you know, Good Samaritans, that, that's our um, our stereotype. About, but um, in Jesus's day, that story of, of love from a Samaritan for presumably a Jew who's been left abandoned and beaten on the road um, speaks volumes about how we're called to love, not just the folks within our tribe, but actually those who we've been raised to hate.
2: Uh, I feel like if you said something along the lines of what the church needs to do more than ever is now love, Um, I can imagine someone in the 80s and the 90s being, oh yeah, that's what we think too. What is it about today to like, is there a different type of love that you feel like Christians need to like practice? Is it kind of more along the lines of what you're talking about, which is a diversity of love for different people? Or how is it unique today in the type of expression of love?
3: Yeah, I mean, here's the really sad thing. I think when Christians hear, and this sometimes happens actually, especially when I'm talking about um, how Christians should relate to folks who identify as gay or lesbian. If, if christians are used to one of two kinds of um approach one which is one which foregrounds love and says part of loving is affirming even when somebody's making choices that the bible clearly prohibits and so we need you know we need to sort of um leave go, let go of the bible um when it comes to the really hard things that the bible says about human sexuality in order to be loving and then on the other hand, there are people who who say, you know, I know what the Bible says, I know what the Bible prohibits, and I know, you know, I know um, that there are uh, things that are being affirmed today that the Bible doesn't affirm, and so um, my approach is going to be the opposite of love. And it, it's sort of heartbreaking that we have like bifurcated that way, um, so that when if I speak, um, you know, in even a tone that is empathetic. Um, and that calls Christians to, you know, basic f- acts of love for um, uh, folks out, outside the church in particular, who identify as gay or lesbian. People sort of hear me as saying, oh, you're letting go of Christian sexual ethics. I'm thinking, no, n- literally not not at all. Um, but if we don't show love for those who, who may even be primed to, to not expect love from us. Um, that's where we're letting go of Christian ethics. Actually, we need to hold on both to what the Bible says about sexuality and to what the Bible says about love. And we actually need to recognise, like, how how deeply connected those two things are, because part of what's happened again, um, in different ways, both inside the church and outside, is that we have we've idolised marriage. We, we've said that hum- a particular human sort of sexual relationship um, is the ultimate thing, and that you couldn't possibly deprive somebody of the opportunity for that ultimate thing you know that would be the most kind of cruel and, and unusual punishment to say to somebody hey you're not going to get to participate in this thing which is the ultimate thing mm. if we look at the scriptures it's not the ultimate thing They I mean, marriage at his absolute best points us to jesus love for his church mm-hmm. mm. and so this idea that um you know, for example saying to someone who is exclusively attracted to folks with their same sex and so you know, unlikely to be able to participate in um, marriage to somebody of the opposite sex to to talk as if they are um you know, missing out on the best mm-hmm. that they could you know the world could possibly offer is actually a, or it, it's too strong to say it's a denial of the gospel mm-hmm. but we're getting close <laughs> mm-hmm. um, when we start to buy into this idea that um sexual and romantic fulfillment is is the ultimate goal when in fact it's our relationship with jesus is the ultimate goal mm.
1: Uh, on that same topic of um, sexual identity you know you've written about it a lot and I know that especially in progressive cities like Los Angeles that is the hot button issue in the church right now um and and i guess you know my question and, and maybe you can now speak and go from the workplace to to churches because I think one of the beauty of uh, beauties of your books is that i felt i felt like back in the 90s and early 2000, when, when, when we were reading a lot of apologetics books, it was always kind of equipping us to have conversations mm. with people outside the room. Mm. Um, but I feel like a lot of your books are, are now, these are issues that are being raised and thought about inside the room, you know, yeah. um, some secretly, um, you know, and, and, and so I guess I think for pastors, it's tough now knowing that they have congregation members that are wrestling with these issues that are maybe too scared to talk about it or even have a conversation about it in the context of church and especially Mm -hmm. in the asian american churches we we pastor Mm in um, a lot of shame and a lot of family history kind of connected to that um i guess for pastors but also leaders in the church any practical tips on how you can create like a truly safe space for people to be able to wrestle with their sexuality Mm. Mm. as it relates to their discipleship to Jesus.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Super important. I think number one, we need to always assume that there are people in the room for whom this is going to be a personal issue and experience. Mm -hmm. I think too often as Christians, we've talked about, you know, the LGBT community sort of out there as if it's nothing to do with the, the room that we're addressing, whether it's the whole church gathered on a Sunday morning or whether it's actually our small group or you know the couple of guys that we've met up with for for coffee and coffee and discipleship, and I think we need to get a, away from that mentality. Um, because th- the absolute worst thing that we can do for anyone who is wrestling with sexual temptation is to leave them alone and tell them that their struggle is the thing that they can't talk about.
0: Mm.
3: Uh, I, I think in in too many churches, it's easier to confess a pornography addiction than it is to talk about your same-sex attraction mm-hmm. now i think it's very good that people feel safe to talk about their pornography addiction and i think um we we all need each other when it comes to fighting sexual sin um, and temptation whatever format's going to take for us but we need to make it less of a kind of them and us scenario um i was actually really encouraged recently talking with a a, a brother who experiences same-sex attraction um, and he was showing that he's in an accountability group with some other guys and you know one of the things that they keep each other accountable is pornography and he's the only guy in the group for whom the kind of pornography he'd be drawn to would be involving other men but it's sort of to some extent irrelevant you know all of them are drawn to sexual sin in this area and they need each other they kind of need to be shouldered up to help each other fight that temptation and so i, I think it's incredibly important that within our churches we create a culture where um, nobody struggles with sin by themselves mm-hmm. it's actually i think it's one of satan's most powerful kind of lies against us is that you know we can't talk to our brothers and sisters about the things that, that we struggle with most so you know what does it look like for a pastor to model that i mean i think um it, it it's probably a whole range of things i think it's reinforcing to your leaders hey you need to stop assuming that nobody in your small group is struggling in this area because the chances are they are. Um, it maybe means, um, you know, hosting some of the the people who got us raised up within the church um, to speak on these issues from from a position of sort of personal experience so that they have a model for what does it look like to be a faithful Christian who is upholding what the scriptures say um, and who is acknowledging that this is a real temptation for them. So I think so often we need those models and those um, examples. And I think it's, it's being willing to actually call out the sin of homophobia. Now, Mm -hmm. let me explain what I mean by that, because it's sort of thing that, you know, somebody could tweet that and completely misrepresent what I'm saying. I think we need to be willing uh, and um, not keen is the wrong word. I think we need to be um, willing and faithful in, in our teaching when it comes to Christian sexual ethics. I think we need to, I, we are not showing love to anybody inside our church or outside. If we pretend that the Bible affirms gay marriage for believers, for instance, it just, it just doesn't. And so we need to be ready to, um, to s- name sin for what it is from the scriptures. But at the same time, or rather, and at the same time, we need to be ready to name the sin that we Christians have often participated in of being deeply unloving in our treatment of gay and lesbian people outside the church and of our same-sex attracted brothers within the church Mm -hmm. i think we need to recognize you know both of those things are actually sinful not saying i'm not sort of playing an equivalence game here yeah but but at the same time as as you're you know teaching clearly on christian sexual ethics we also need to 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 teach against self-righteousness against um hatred um and I think we will see that coming naturally to us from the text. So if I think about every time, for example, that the Apostle Paul names um, homosexual relationships as, as sinful, if you look just within a few verses of that moment, you'll find Paul making it very clear that none of us um, are righteous. And one of my favorite examples is, is in First Timothy, where Paul, um, just uh, in chapter 1, just after he's talked about um, homosexual relationships as being sinful, right next to the enslaving people being sinful. By the way, uh, interesting kind of juxtaposition there. He goes on a couple of verses later to say, um, "This is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance, acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost." Now, Paul is not standing on a moral high ground, like throwing grenades down at people. He's saying, "Hey, <clears throat> Jesus saved me to show that even somebody as bad as me could be saved." So I think we can preach, we must preach against self-righteousness when we preach on, on this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, likewise in in Romans one, um, if you if you're feeling good about yourself as you near the end of Romans one, you then get a big slap in the face from Paul um, for thinking that you're righteous when you're not. So I, I think we need to, yeah, preach both I think we need to preach truth, both when it comes to sexual ethics and when it comes to um, our own utter moral failure across the board and the call to love um, that is fundamental to Jesus' teaching.
2: Mm. How do you think you could, as pastors, if you could give a word for pastors, approach that topic um, with courage and compassion? Because I feel like so many pastors, they don't touch it because they're worried they're going to get canceled. Yeah. And, you know, oftentimes what I hear is, you know, you, he- you hear churches that maybe have more of a conservative view, you know, you know, people in the LGBTQ community would join it, and then they feel like, "Wait, you guys don't don't affirm me." Like, you never. There's no indication that there was any of that until I came to like the doctrinal portion of like the membership class. Versus right. other churches, there's just very upfront about it, and you know nobody's going to feel welcome to may not agree with that church's view. So I feel mm-hmm. like as pastors, it's a very confusing time of how to navigate through that. Like, do you have any advice for pastors when they actually do talk about that?
3: Yeah, it, it's not easy for sure. Um, I think we need to examine our own hearts in those scenarios. So if we're not speaking clearly because we are afraid that we will be canceled, we need to sort of look at that and ask ourselves, how would we do in a situation where real physical persecution was coming our way? I don't say that lightly. I mean, it would be only by the the Lord's help and mercy that I would be able to stand up under real, like the kind of persecution that drags you to prison or, or executes you, you know, that kind of persecution. If we find that our, our concern about being cancelled is, is really a concern for self-protection and a fear of you know, the, the things that people might say about us or the ways in which we might be in, in meaningful ways discriminated against, I think we need to pray hard for courage. Um, if our concern is, okay, I, I'm desperate to preach the gospel here, and if my, I don't know, like my website sort of has a section where it says like, this is our, this is what we teach on sexual ethics. And, and that um, will simply mean that people just don't come and give the church here a chance um, to, to preach the gospel. Like, you know, I can understand a the circumstance there of saying you know, I want to, um, to be able to, to come in and hear um, holistically, what we're preaching um so it, it's not I, i'm not saying i think you know your, your website front and center should say you know i don't know jesus loving church um doesn't affirm gay marriage for christians like i'm not you know i'm not saying that like should be like the second statement on your website or something um but yeah i, I think we need to before the lord examine our, our hearts and, and pray for wisdom to know when are we making decisions that are actually based on our own self-interest and our reluctance to face the kind of low level persecution that we'll face and when are we doing it truly out of, um, out of love and a desire to get a hearing, but knowing that we, we are ready to be very clear when, you know, as that hearing comes.
0: Hmm. It, shifting gears a little bit, but still connected to, to a lot of what you were just saying. Uh, one big question I have for the church as someone a little bit younger in ministry, um, is, gen z uh just the next generation of of kids and members of believers of parents even that are coming up sooner than later a lot of them live in this stream like this to a lot of you know quote unquote older folk this is kind of like oh this is like we got to navigate this well but for a lot of younger folk this is what they live and breathe in um in the school systems on their TikTok, on their instagram and i'm always not worried but just I'm really curious in how the church and Gen Z will clash. I know there was a big, you know, oh, what will we do with millennials? And that turned out to be kind of okay. Um, but with the Gen <laughs> Z, um, yeah, I don't know. I you, You've written a little bit about this too. And I think your writing actually speaks to them uh, for some, not not for some reason, but you know, you're very clear on it and, and loving. But I guess for you, like, how would you best equip or tell pastors or churches to get ready for the, I, I, no, they're not some alien invasion coming that'll ruin our churches, <laughs> right. right? But yeah. to kind of like, there's gonna be a, sh- there's gonna need to be a shift in our ministry. And I guess for you, kind of in this stream, what are some things that churches can do to kind of reach the Gen Z believers, mm-hmm. skeptics, whatever they may be, uh, more effectively in the future?
3: Yeah, yeah. I think we need to disciple our kids well on this from the ground up. I think too often we've been afraid. We, we've honestly been afraid to talk to our kids about sexuality at all. Um, and I think that's robbed them of the opportunity to get a proper um, gospel foundation for their understanding of, of sex and marriage as being ultimately pointing to Jesus and the church. Um, and, and it's it's meant that they we sort of sent them just into, into school or into friend groups um, and not been on the front end of that conversation with them. So I think you know part of it is just going to be us like having those conversations early on and um, expecting that our our kids will um, pay pay the cost or some cost of discipleship early on. So and again, mm-hmm. I think of my, my daughter who's 11. And there was um, a day of silence um, in support of LGBT people at her school last semester. Uh, and she chose not to participate um, for reasons of conscience. Now, her favourite teacher is a lesbian married to another woman. Um, one of her closest friends identifies as non binary, like, it's nothing to do with her not loving people, who identify as lgbt it's a, it's about her having christian conviction to where she can't affirm that this is this is right and she lost a dear friend of hers over that you know the friend decided that she couldn't be friends with her anymore because um you know she just dis- dismissed my daughter as homophobic um so she's you know already at, at 11 playing paying some real social cost for standing as a christian and i think it's really easy for us um As parents or as pastors to mostly want to protect our kids I think we need to shift to mostly wanting to disciple them Mm. and and, you know Jesus says anyone who wants to come after him must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow him and and that needs I mean we are so sheltered from that in the West in so many ways but giving our kids um, support as they face the realities Uh, of uh, you know what it means to to live as a christian in their generation early on i think will help them and it'll also give their their friends an opportunity to hear the gospel um you know faithfully proclaimed and and a christian life faithfully lived Hmm. so i think yeah we need to take seriously the discipleship of our children and not to try and do it just sort of in a separate bubble until one day when they're 21 we can kind of release them into the world as proper christians mm-hmm. um, i think we need to walk alongside them and discipleship the now and i think oh, we need to recognize quite how much this rising generation is hurting and, and that comes from a, a lot of directions not least that they're less, less likely to be being taken to church and it's the the evidence that regular religious participation is correlated with better mental health outcomes is like extremely robust and strong you know coming out of Harvard School of Public Health um so the, there's a the problem of secularisation. there's the problem of um, sexualization um although sort of oddly teenagers today are, seem to be having less actual sex than teenagers were you know 10 years ago um, but but this sense of um, we we haven't again i mean both from the scriptures and from data we haven't um properly uh, helped our kids to understand that having multiple sexual partners is not the path to happiness but in fact the path to misery Mm -hmm. um we've especially released our kids to continual social media um encounters and to you know things like instagram where adolescent girls in particular are being um pulled into depression as they feel like they don't live up to the expectations of how a young girl should look um so we have a profoundly hurting generation you know coming up uh and we have everything that they need within the church hmm. um, of course we have jesus and there's it's inseparable. i mean jesus and his people are inseparable in this respect but we also have the community the real community that they long for If we're doing it right um we have the the people who can parent them if their parents are um massively letting them down we we have the um the opportunities for for real intimacy that's not sexual that they actually really need Hmm. um we have the 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 ways that they can learn that serving others is actually a much better route to fulfillment than kind of Seeking our own fulfillment, in and of itself, uh, we yeah. So we we have everything that they need, thanks be to God, and we need mm. to invite them to that.
1: Mm. That's really encouraging. Um, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, at the beginning of your book, confronting Christianity. You know, it's I think right now because what we're hearing is a lot of doom and gloom here mm. in the states in terms of, you know, Christianity being under siege and, you know, we're we're getting like blog posts and articles every day talking about how young people are leaving the church in droves. Um, but you, you actually begin your book by saying that Christianity is actually still outpacing um, secularism and, and may, you know, even those with no religious affiliation um, at all. And so, um, I mean, just to hear what, you know, hear you saying what you're saying as well. I mean, I'm assuming you're excited about kind of what, what the future holds for the church. But I don't know if you could maybe, um, you know, I know a lot of our listeners, a lot of our friends, they're they're in a, a season and a moment of pastoral discouragement, you know, because mm, mm. what they see is like nobody wants anything to do with the church and Jesus anymore. And so would love maybe if you could speak to that a bit.
3: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I find most encourages me and, and most encourages um, many others is recognizing that Christianity from the first was a multiracial, multicultural, multi-ethnic movement. And that actually that is only more true now than it was at the very beginning. Um, I, I don't say that for a second to sort of, to, to use a slightly um, ironic term, like whitewash <laughs> um, the ways in which Uh, self-identifying christians have engaged in horrific acts of of racism and and that you know the deep um hurt and sin that has has plagued many churches um over over centuries in this area but i think recognizing that there we have many brothers and sisters who we may not be meeting because they even within the us they're living in, in different communities than us but that actually christianity in the US today is like the most diverse movement in town. Like if we actually kind of get together, people can see. Um, And I I think there's this this assumption in in culture more broadly that Christianity is sort of against diversity. When in fact, if we look at the the believers on the ground, we find an incredible um, racial, cultural, socioeconomic mix of people, um, which no other belief system can actually really compete with. So I think we need to, uh, I sometimes sort of talk about the need to reclaim diversity yeah. <laughs> and you would just say, wait a minute, this is our thing
0: <laughs> um, actually. <laughs> mm.
3: And that many of the moral concerns that are coming at us from the outside are ones that Christianity actually birthed in the first place. So for example, a concern for women, um, you know, the Me Too movement would have been laughable in the Greco-Roman empire into which Christianity was born. Um, the, the idea that women were sort of equally valuable to men and that sexually exploiting or abusing women was not okay um, would, would have literally made a you know, Roman citizen male laugh out loud. Uh, it, it's, it's only because of the impact that Christianity has had that we think these things are, are deeply problematic. And um, I'm right now just finishing a book called Jesus Through the Eyes of Women, where I'm looking specifically at the women Jesus met in the Gospels and how his like the way that he related to women and the way he today relates to women as well, but like seeing it, seeing it in the gospels, um, it's so strongly speaks to, our um, the desire of our non-Christian friends to see, mm. um, women properly recognized as equal and, and, um, validated and, um, listened to and, and protected and all the things. Um, so I think we, you know, we have incredible resources there. I think in, we probably don't have time for a like full conversation about this, but one of the sad sort of ironies of the transgender movement is we're actually losing what it, the definition of a woman in hmm. ways that are being recognized as highly problematic, not just by Christians, but actually by many secular um, feminist voices. And so I think that going back to the scriptures and, and um, helping people to see how... The, the vision that they give us of the goodness of both men and women um, made in God's image and the ways that um, the New Testament talks about us are actually extraordinarily valuable today as as um, our understanding of what it means to be a man or a woman actually is sort of crumbling underneath our feet. Hmm.
2: Uh, changing gears a bit, but also connected, speaking of women, yeah. um, I feel that you're one of the few women that I could point sisters in our church to as being a voice for sisters in the church. Um, because I feel like even though historically the church has meant to strengthen and dignify women, oftentimes women's voices have been silenced and haven't really been platformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I completely understand why churches are becoming more egalitarian because uh, that's kind of only like the only opportunity that sisters almost think like they could have to have a voice to shape the church. But the, regardless of your theological convictions, what would you advise for like sisters who they want to do something for the church they want to serve but they don't know how because there's just not a lot of models or examples for them to Mm -hmm. see like do you have any advice for for sisters who are interested in serving in ministry
3: Mm. yeah it's fascinating to me that the the christian movement has always been majority female Mm -hmm. and that was true Mm -hmm. in the first century it's true today um and even as we look back to the gospels the 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 fact that the women were the first witnesses of the resurrection is like so embarrassing from the perspective of the early church i mean in terms of like trying to speak the the language of the culture of their day like what a what a stumbling block to say wow a bunch of women um sorts of things uh, they have to be laughed at for the, everything seems to depend on the testimony of women and weeping weeping women no less um women have always been in the majority in the church uh women have extraordinary opportunities to um, share the gospel and to teach the Bible Mm. um, day-to-day with people in their lives in all sorts of contexts. I think um, the conversations that we often end up having about women in leadership in the church, um, and I'm not saying they're not conversations worth having, but I think we often have them with the basic understanding that um, for example, pastoring a church or being in a um, recognized leadership position in a church is mostly about power and prestige and privilege and that uh, it's like so unfair to sort of cut women out of you know that position of prestige as the pastor for example i think if we read the gospels um we find that actually leadership in the church is about service and suffering i mean jesus is extremely clear and he has to say it so many times to his disciples because they just don't get it you know they're all vying for the top position in his kingdom and he's like you you've no idea um anyone who wants to be first among you must be the slave of all and that even the son of man didn't come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many and so i think um i do not i do not i'm not addressing this to just to women i think often we we think in un-christian hierarchical terms about what church means and mm-hmm. what valid leadership and teaching looks like mm-hmm. um when in fact i mean going back to what we were talking about earlier and, and that um, desire to not be cancelled, all that fear of persecution. It seems to me that, you know, one of the reasons why the Bible seems to um, give qualified men the position of senior pastor is because if you're the senior pastor, you're the one who gets hauled off to prison first. Um, you're the one who who's first in, in the literal firing line uh, when Christ- Christianity is un- under persecution. Um, and that just in, as in marriage, Husbands are called to sacrifice for their wives, um, with Jesus's crucifixion as the model. So, in the church, uh, pastors are called to serve and sacrifice their their congregations. Um, so, as I think about uh, you know what it means to be a woman and a Christian in the church and the opportunities there, um, I think Christians I respect take you know different views on exactly what women can and can't do on a Sunday morning and um, You know, I think a lot of it's going to be contextual, to be honest, but even if you're in a church setting where women aren't um, preaching or having a sort of formal leadership role on a Sunday morning, there are so many non-believers to be won. There are so many women to be discipled. Um, There are so many opportunities to study the Bible with people Mm. that any investment that a woman makes in any of those things is going to be, you know, worth more in the kingdom of God um, than many pastors and Thai ministries, to be frank and honest.
0: Mm. We we could probably talk to you for another hour. I know you have to run, um, but thank you so much for everything you shared, Rebecca. I think it's it's really refreshing uh, to hear your perspective on a lot of these issues, especially for us living in very secular progressive areas, You know, quote unquote, the doom gloom areas of the church. Um, <laughs> but thank you for your work. Uh, we're all blessed by it and, and we hope you, t- you can continue that work as well.
3: Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so
1: much.
2: Thank you so much, Rebecca.